Hi. So, welcome to the Coronavirus Lectures. This is the first podcast, What is Nonfiction? Let's start at the beginning. We all hate this question, but it seems that one of the reasons we all hate this question is because nonfiction as a term is both so enormous and so vague, and creative nonfiction its supposed replacement, suggests only certain types of writing are in fact imaginative or rely on human creativity. And of course, within nonfiction, it's a whole series of genres, science, philosophy, history, biography, memoir, journalism, travelogues, op-eds, even self-help, just to name a few. Nonfiction includes within it, of course, the essay. But, and here's the thing to remember, nonfiction is not the essay. It's like the way dachshunds are dogs, but not all dogs are dachshunds. That's the problem. But a lot of people in creative writing classrooms conflate the two, which can lead, as you'll see later in this semester, to some pretty sticky ethical dilemmas. Because if essays are nonfiction, and nonfiction is the genre to which we most closely assign the value of truth and truth-telling, we might give a lot of readers the unfortunate impression that all essays are then true, or that truth-telling in the essay itself must always be approached in the exact same ways. But the only form of nonfiction that approaches truth in a consistently same way, and must do so for legal reasons, is newspaper journalism. Essays are not journalism. Thus, not all essays are journalistically true even as they are truthful. And not all essays approach the art of nonfiction in the same way as other forms of nonfiction do. Essays are interpretive and self-reflexive. They use research and criticism, and they don't hold back their opinions on that research. They query, they argue, they implicate and contradict, they leap backwards and forwards across scenes and time. They include dialogue and imagery and character, they are invested in aesthetic techniques we associate with fiction and poetry. So before we even begin this semester, I want to clarify that we'll always be talking about non-fictional essays, essays as a literary mode that may also work within other non-fictional or even poetic modes. So, the sports essay, the political essay the travel essay, the food essay, the lyric essay, the hybrid essay. You might take away from this the idea that specific nonfiction genres have conventions. The historical work, for example, has to be accurate to be a specific period of history and unfold chronologically, while the essay itself is just some free-floating ne'er-do-well bumbling in the dark. But essays, I do believe, have conventions, and the essay's biggest convention may be its use of the narrative I. This eye dates back to Seneca, a Roman Stoic philosopher in the first century AD who wrote plays and philosophical essays in a series of admonitory letters to Lucilius. These letters, on fascinating topics like on clemency, on friendship, on anger, expressed Seneca's Stoic philosophy and made a case for how to live a balanced and just life. Seneca's epistles were personal, but also communal. He didn't just use I in these letters, but we. We, referring not to humanity here, but to the group of Stoic philosophers Seneca counted himself among. Seneca's epistles may not sound personal to us now, but his concerns were personal. How does one shape one's life when the forces all around us conspire to dash our hopes and make us miserable? What does a balanced life mean when nothing about being alive keeps us balanced? St. Augustine, writing in the 5th century, wrote what we might consider the very first memoir, his Confessions. This work, too, was addressed to somebody, in this case, God. So you can see that the earliest works of what we consider literary nonfiction come with an interesting inbuilt tension, supposedly private address created for public consumption. 
You can also see that both these writers had a didactic purpose. The narrative eye in each writer's work was used to personalize what might be harder moral or philosophical truths for a reader to imagine. Now, this is very different from works of nonfiction like The Georgics or Works or Days or Lucretius's De Rerum Natura, which suppress the individual voice and experience in favor of didactic universal declarations. Interesting, too, that these works of nonfiction are also poems. Skip ahead several hundred years, and we get Michel de Montaigne writing in the late 16th century France. His essays, far more so than the works of Seneca, feel modern to us, likely because so many of these essays approach didactic lessons, but oftentimes veer off into startling, sometimes even contradictory or unresolved observations. He also wrote about cannibals. His essays are more like rambling thoughts, inquisitions, and not disquisitions. We read not necessarily because we want to hear his arguments, but because we want to hear his voice. Voice, and that narrative I, are probably the most powerful lingering effects of Seneca, Augustine, and Montaigne to readers of the essay in creative nonfiction. It's not a particular set of literary techniques, but the construction of selfhood on the page that gives the essay and literary nonfiction its set of conventions. And how we construct the self is through self-interrogation, through the juxtaposition of ideas, and through the exploration of personal events. We show the self behaving well, behaving badly, and being challenged. The world and the world of ideas gets filtered through the self, refracted, and amplified. But how we understand the self is also largely done through the examination of others. So to paraphrase your favorite 20th century French philosopher, Emmanuel Levinas, the construction of the self begins in its relation to others. By being aware of other people, we become increasingly aware of ourselves. That's why literary nonfiction and the essay often center around the conflict between self and an other, or others, even if those others are just the ideas represented by different identities. It's that conflict between self and other that gives rise to a more nuanced sense of self that the writer experiences and which shapes the essayistic eye and the particularity of her voice. The use of the essayistic eye is so expected that probably you just assumed it was a requirement of the form itself. In fact, it might feel disruptive to read Truman Capote's In Cold Blood or Catherine Boo's Behind the Beautiful Forevers, both nonfiction novels, and realize these are in fact works of nonfiction. Both of these works work within the tradition of new journalism popularized in the 1960s and 70s by writers like Capote, Norman Mailer, Joan Didion, and Tom Wolfe. New journalism focuses on real events, but represented through conventional literary techniques associated with fiction, like emphasis on setting, dialogue, character, and imagery. While they are works of nonfiction, many of these works effectively abandon the idea of an I at all. So you can see that the I, even the idea of an I, isn't in fact a requirement of the essay or literary nonfiction. You can always write a perfectly good essay or nonfiction novel without once using the word I. The question is, what do we miss, risk, or gain without the overt acknowledgement of your own perspective? That's something we'll be returning to over the course of the semester, but for now it's helpful to think of the literary essay genre as an exploration of self, just from a very self-aware position. In the earliest works of Western literary nonfiction, that self might also stand in for a particular community. When Montaigne writes about cannibals, for example, he's writing from and about a Western and French understanding of what the cannibal might be, to challenge a Western and French readership. When Thoreau uses I and we, he doesn't differentiate between his idea of being a self and the idea of how humanity in general might feel. 
I here might write about the other, but the I takes for granted that the reader is not the other. This changes as we head again towards the mid-20th century, when sometimes the self on the page is writing against the society in which she's represented. Here the I is the other. You see this in works by James Baldwin, for example, in The Fire Next Time, or Gloria Anzaldúa in Borderlands, or Claudia Rankin in Citizen. Suddenly, the I in literary nonfiction becomes even more profoundly important to the interpretation and the form of the essay itself. That self-awareness includes the ways in which the self has been framed and language and imagery that the author's self would not choose and never intend in her own work. There are also essays that challenge conventional explorations of identity through the use of collage and textual fragmentation or the interweaving of cultural criticisms in the work of Maggie Nelson. Maybe these works want to be more accurate representations of how the self really is, in which case they want to show how the self isn't a continuous construction at all. All of us are sewn together through bits of memory, history, and random interaction. Or perhaps they want to reject having the identity on the page become formulaic. A work like Dictée, for example, may reject having the immigrant, female, and Korean self known through clear textual representation. Even though it's wildly different from most literary nonfiction, Dictée is still speaking to and against the conventions of the essay. And finally, there are works of nonfiction that blur the boundary between nonfiction and fiction entirely. The work of W.J. Sebald, for example, or the I novels popular in Japan during the early part of the 20th century. Like Sebald's work, these are supposedly personal or confessional novels where the events in the books corresponded with events in the author's own life. The most recent I novel we have today is Tale for the Time Being by the Japanese-American author Ruth Ozeki. But while these novels use the names of the authors themselves, or can be in part mapped onto the autobiographies of the writers, they also make significant and clearly telegraphed departures from the writers' lives. Rather than reflecting consistently accurate facts, I novels emphasize the real spiritual conditions of the author. The I novel is not meant ultimately to be a confession about the writer, but an expose of the cultural norms and social values that have shaped her. The real events and authorial identity that inform the non-fictional novel is meant to drive home the critique itself, which may be dismissed by readers in a book that's read solely as fictional. That's why I think Sebald's novelistic work is also hybrid. To critique post-war Germany, to investigate the real effects of the Holocaust on German identity over time, a personal reckoning carries with it a greater weight. We may dismiss the reactions of a fictional character, but we can't dismiss how Sebald himself feels. All this is why, in the creative nonfiction classroom, we tend to group together the nonfiction genres that are the most literary. Travelogues, the hybrid or lyric essay, memoir, literary journalism, or even cultural criticism. All are forms of nonfiction that privilege the essayistic exploration of self, usually through its interaction with others. So... This leads to an immediate and continuous ethical problem that every literary nonfiction writer runs up against at some point. If the essay involves writing about others so as to write about myself, how do I write about others in a way that doesn't take advantage of others? Here's something that happened to me. A couple of years ago, I read my essay, Nightingale, a Gloss, at a college in California. The piece is about a sexual assault I experienced in my 20s. A lot of the students were apparently moved by the piece, and one, for a class, decided to write a response, which her teacher then sent to me. Now, the response piece didn't just write about how she felt hearing my essay. It actually rewrote and reframed my assault itself, so that I had to read what happened to me in someone else's words. In effect, it was like getting assaulted all over again. 
When we are written about, we are in an extraordinarily vulnerable place, something we might forget as writers. And when we write about other people, we put them in the position of not being able to respond immediately or even at all. When we use other people's experiences as opportunities for our own self-enlightenment, this risks turning other people's lives and their personal experiences into props. But this is not how we experience the pain and joy of our own lives. We have, as writers, a responsibility to other people by acknowledging that. And that's something that Levinas himself acknowledged. To be an I, he said, means then not to be able to escape responsibility as though the whole edifice of creation rested on my shoulders. Now, that's a pretty impossible burden to bear, but the idea of being responsible for the other is one we should keep in mind as writers. It's also important to remember that Levinas's argument that there is an inherent responsibility to the other is also based on an assumption that you can know everything the other knows and feels and experiences, thus you can represent them responsibly. The fact is you can't. Memory and subjectivity make this impossible. And if you can't know the other perfectly because we don't have complete knowledge of the truth of them, just a truth of them, how can you have real responsibility for them on the page? Basically, we tell the story of the I and the other that we can, but because truth can never be entirely encapsulated, we'll always fail the people we write about in some way. My resurrected dialogue with my mother from when I was eight will likely miss out on something very poignant she said to me due to my poor memory. But understanding that failure of truth and memory is inbuilt into the process of writing, I would argue that it is then unethical to deliberately falsify what you can get right. In other words, if you know that the project is doomed to failures that you can't correct or be responsible for, you have to be ultra-responsible for what is in your control. Now, there are a lot of writers who will disagree with me about that, in particular John Degato, who you'll be listening to later on in this semester. And there are writers who work in the fictional essayistic mode, And if you read the essay, The Ethics of Nonfiction on Canvas, you'll get a real sweep of all the different ideas of what constitutes an ethics of writing about people. But I think this is a good rule of thumb to work on when you're starting out as conventional essayists. Personally, I'm more on Annie Dillard's line of thinking regarding writing about others. Show your work to those you're writing about, and if they object, maybe you shouldn't include it. As writers, you'll be making a lot of aesthetic decisions around the reorganization of time and the juxtaposition of scene. You'll be cleaning up dialogue to read more smoothly. You'll be employing images and metaphors to give real events heightened literary meaning. You'll make many decisions in your writing for aesthetic purposes. This is something we already do for poetry and fiction, but what makes nonfiction its own genre, however creative or lyric or hybrid it finally is, is the fact that it is attached to some real experience, thus real humans are being depicted. Thus not all decisions you make can be done for aesthetics, especially if the meaning of your essay at all hinges on the idea of a self speaking authentically about real experiences. Another good rule of thumb to work by is this. If the other behaves badly on the page, the I should also behave badly. It's a manipulative trick, obviously, as it's finally meant to establish the truthfulness of the I in your essays, but it also seems to me a fair way to approach representing people unlike ourselves. So... With all that said, I would suggest this term that we gloss over the problem of names, essay, literary nonfiction, creative nonfiction, lyric nonfiction, whatever term you use will end up being dissatisfactory to at least one of your projects. Rather than worry about terms, concern yourself with the systems of knowledge making each kind of nonfiction allows you to pursue. Focusing on the role of voice and self-knowledge, not genre categorization, returns us to the very history of nonfiction itself, which often included letters, 
epic poems, diaries, memoirs, and philosophy as modes of personal investigation. The only people who probably feel confident about genre determinations now anyway are either publicists or booksellers, and they're paid to make these distinctions. Genres are continually invented, rarely static categories of literary expression, and it's always been people working between conventions that produce some of the most interesting and enduring art. I look forward to working with you. So good luck. I look forward to working with you. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Coronavirus Lectures. Please read the rest of the essays assigned this week and complete whatever is due by the whatever due date it's due.